This episode of That Dan Ban Show is brought to you by the Captain U Recruiting Platform, powered by Stack Sports. Captain U is breaking into the band space to offer support to high school students who are looking to perform in band at the collegiate level. With over 10 years in the recruiting industry and over 3 million student profiles created over the years, Captain U has long been a leader in athlete advocacy and support. Now, it's time to provide that same support to band performers. Captain U creates a direct line of communication between musicians and college band directors. With the LinkedIn style profile, performers can put their best foot forward with searchable criteria like their position, academic info and test scores, audition videos, director recommendations, and potential majors. Performers can directly message college directors to learn about scholarship opportunities, a university's academic strengths, and ultimately place themselves at the right institution. If you are a high school band student looking to perform at the next level, go to CaptainU.com and create a free profile today. It takes less than five minutes and will save you time and money. And for a limited time, we are offering performers 50% off an upgraded profile by using the promo code TDBS21. That's right. 50% off an upgraded profile on CaptainU.com by using the code TDBS21 at checkout. Sign up on Captain U, gain exposure, and get recruited. Powered by Stack Sports. And we are rolling. Hi, everybody. What's up? Welcome back to That Dan Band Show. This is a podcast where we talk about all things marching arts, sometimes other things too. You never really know where it's going to go. I have a, a dope guest today. Uh, honestly, it's been a long time coming. I had to really wait to invite this person on, uh, even on my previous podcast, because I just knew it was going to be, it was going to be a good one. So I'm, uh, I'm very honored and, and excited to welcome, uh, Matt Penland on here with us today. Matt, what's up? How are you? Doing so well. Doing great. Doing great. As always, staying positive. Before we start rolling into whatever direction we kind of roll in, just talk to the listener who might not know who you are. Likely everyone does because you're band famous, but talk to us about who you are, you know, what you're doing now, kind of what, what's your story uh, through the marching arts? Well, my actual day job is I'm a member of the United States Air Force Band. That's like my actual career um, outside of the marching arts. In the marching arts, I'm a, a ranger, I would say is like the first thing I should bring up, you know, at this point in my career, I'm an arranger for Music City Drum Corps, Guardians Drum and Bugle Corps, and the Caballeros Drum Corps. Um, I'm on staff at George Mason University with Dan and Santa Clara Vanguard. I've been on staff there. This will be my 10th season at Santa Clara Vanguard, sixth wow. season at George Mason Indoor. Um, before that, I marched tenors for six summers in DCI as a member at Crossman, Carolina Crown, Phantom Regiment, and Santa Clara. I think that's it. <laughs> Only a few, a few organizations. I, the, the first thing, you know, before we knew each other, um, you know, pre-George Mason 2017 days, like I was definitely aware of, you know, who you were as a person. And I feel like um, it was it was just like you were that next quad person, um, that next generation who was just doing things that, probably either hadn't been done or you had put more time in than a lot of people, you know, I'm sure we, we have some people come to mind, like, you know, the Tim Jackson I and E days, 
uh, with the three sets of quads for the Godfather. Um, and I'm sure there's like a lot that I would miss, um, you know, if I was going to name, just try to go down the list. But I, I just know for me, like in the age I was marching, it was like you were that guy. So, I, you know, I feel like as a as a player, you've done something that has set you apart from from others. I, I would love to just hear like, what has that been from when you started? Like, did you just commit more time in the practice room? Is the way you practice different? Just talk to me about how you got to where you got when you were winning, you know, PASIC or DCI solo contests all the time. Sure. Um, I have to say that specifically that Tim Jackson quad solo video, I think I watched a hundred times when I was coming up marching. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, I, you know, I idolize those people you're naming. You're talking about like, you know, that lineage coming up and yeah, I guess that's part of my answer is that I knew I wanted to do that so bad. Like my dream was to do solo competitions on quads. And I always was like, so drawn to the instrument and knew that I wanted to like try to do something someone's never done on the instrument. It used to be my goal when I was coming up with solos was, I would always like start by writing a solo by like on a piece of paper, writing all the things I like tricks or things I wanted to be in the solo, mm-hmm. the words, something no one's ever seen. That would be like a thing on my to-do list that I'd have to come up with something new every time. Because I felt like whenever I watched like Tim Jackson's solos, he'd do something I'd never thought of. And I wanted to like make sure I was on that level, you know? Yeah. I think in terms of preparation, I, I guess I would say that maybe I practiced you know, literally just the practice hours was insane. Cause when I was in music school, I like to tell the story a lot. It's true, but you know, I, I was an undergraduate music major. And when you do that, you go to the practice room every day and you're like, you're on, depending on what lessons you're in, you know, I'm practicing marimba for two hours. And I have my schedule all mapped out and like concert snare drum for this hour. And when I was in school, I would do like quads for two hours. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like seven days a week. Like it was on yeah. my list of instruments that I just treated like, everything else because it was almost like I was right. in lessons I was in drumline North Texas every single semester for like eight semesters in a row plus marching drum corps so it was like a part of my life continuously on top of like timpani and room and all these things so I just treated it I didn't go in a practice room I went outside of this music building where we yeah the drums but I treated it like a daily thing and I'd warm up every single day seven days a week and I'd like be writing my next solo or I'd be like trying to come up with the next trick pretty much every day until I aged out I think I didn't think about that at the time, but it just built up gradually, gradually, gradually that I never had it down. There's no any like down months at all. I was just like year round constantly. That's super wild. And I I think maybe some of the you know approach you took to what it was going to take to be a virtuosic player on, let's say, a marimba or conscious snare drum, um, that those, let's say, behaviors or approaches they'd follow through with the marching idiom because for me i feel like i have such a vastly different experience with like my individual development where it was like i was in drum corps or i was like in my high school line or i was then marching you know indoor whatever but i was like drumming like drum line stuff exclusively with people you know playing on a drum, like me and Tom Gasparini, like we learned every rhythm X book that you could learn when we were at hurricanes. And like, that's what we did. And it was like, I feel like that led me down a different path in terms of, I mean, I marched DCI. It's like, I feel like I 
I was good enough and fine to do that. But I don't know that I went as deep as someone like you has, where you really are paying attention to your sound. I don't think I really know, knew what I sounded like. Maybe until after I aged out. You know what I'm saying with that? It's like, yeah. it's like, did you feel like there there came a point where you were actually able to assess your own playing on that higher level that maybe we assess now as the teachers? Yeah, I mean, for sure for me it was, I, I was that guy, you know, I marched drum corps in high school when I, I was marching across the my first year at Crown. I was just, I grew up in North Carolina, just to like kind of middle of nowhere high school. I had a great percussion program there. We had a great drum line. But I was definitely like what you're explaining. I would just learn every single Blue Devils quad break I could possibly find on online. And it was just all about the chops, chops. And then the, yeah. r- right when I got to North Texas, I somehow I got accepted into North Texas for my undergrad, which was like dream school for me. You know, you hear about. And before school even started, I'm not sure if I, I'm sure I've told you the story before, but I auditioned for the A-line, which is like the UNT indoor drum line. We were going to PC. Yeah. We used to do that every year. And that's even before school started. I hadn't started lessons or anything. I was just like coming straight off of Carolina Crown 2008. And you do an individual audition with Paul Rennick for your audition. And I was like, he, he just said, play anything, you know, or just play something from your show. Like, that's fine. Cause I know everyone just finished. So I just played the closer from Carolina Crown. Cause that's all, all I knew, which is just like fortissimo. <laughs> completely just like, in this tiny little like it was an indoor audition in this tiny percussion ensemble room and i knew when a little out of context that everything was just like a little that's just how i learned you know how i knew how to play and and i'll never forget that like he just kind of he didn't say anything i finished playing you know i played it well no rims so, you know, i'm playing all the rhythms right and he just he didn't know who i was and he kind of just nodded his head and he went like oh okay he just kind of like shrugged his shoulders like wow okay that was like totally different style but yeah, I, th- I think you still could understand the potential there. Well, clearly, because he put me on the line. Thank God, I was like the only one without experience in one of his groups before that he accepted. And like that first semester, where I was, I think, yeah, I, it's hard to even explain in words like the one eighty shift that he gave me in during warmups and we were warming up, and he would used to walk straight up to my drum, and the whole rest of the room because they all knew what he was going to say. They'd all sit down and wait, and I'd be standing up at the drum line. Me like a one-on-one, 30-minute thing about like how to play eights, you know? And then everyone would stand up and play eights again. <laughs> it's just like, he could see that I had the potential, but I just had never thought about my sound. It was literally all he talked about. Every mm-hmm. rep me for like a month was like, play it by yourself. So you, okay, now the guy next to you, play it by yourself. He was like a fifth-year senior. Can you hear the difference? And I would just be like, oh my God, I've never even thought to get that in depth until you're just like next to you and you're like, Oh yeah. Especially on quads. I mean like the sound of like mm. Renaissance head is so delicate and you have like so much to think about that I think just flew over my head when I was 16, you know, I'm positive. There was, I mean the level that you were probably processing being in crown in 2008, I I'm sure you were thinking like you, you were like, right like just surviving dot to dot. I mean, I don't know. You're probably like doing better than that, but like, I mean, that's how I felt a lot of times. Like, yeah, I mean, you're 16 years old. Like that's, that's 18 crazy. That summer, but yeah, still okay. started music school or anything. You know, I was still just right. in Crossman and that was it, you know? Whew. So, I mean, I think it's, it's not totally known to everyone the way that like, I think about this a lot, the way that 
you know, we've, we've collaborated and teaching and, and all the conversations we've had about approach, but can you just talk to me a little bit about, you know, in, in a, in a factual way, not in a judgment based way, but I'd love to hear like, you know, what was the overarching philosophy that you pulled from that crown experience with more like the Lee Bettis, Zach Schlicker, and I believe Rudy was still there too, who was yeah. Blue Devils. Um, and I think James Spoiling was there too. So like, what was, cause that those guys have different backgrounds too. So like, what was the takeaway? Like, what was the identity of that group um, from your perspective? Cause I, I have an opinion, but I wasn't, I was just watching. Yeah. I, well, that, that year specifically, I mean, I had a lot of fun that summer and like at that point, I think crown 2008 was like the best drumline that group ever, ever had, you know? So like, for sure. I remember thinking that summer that everything was like so fun and everything was going great. Every time we like beat someone else in drums, it was like a huge new milestone. Like every show was just like something crazy and new. So at the, at the time, everything was like amazing and it was definitely the best I'd ever played. And I could, I remember knowing that in like the hardest music I'd ever played and the staff was a lot of fun. I, I loved uh, being taught by Rudy and Zach and James and then, like it was I remember having so much fun all the time um, like playing wise I just remember I think the heart like what I took from it was just like intense hard work like we worked our freaking bus and even thinking back to it now just like past the point of exhaustion but like realizing you know at that age that you can get results from that and it's not mm -hmm. nothing because we by the end of the summer, I remember feeling so accomplished and maybe not realizing why, but it's just because maybe we weren't the most talented players that, you know, they've ever had on that drumline, but we worked the hardest at that point, you know, and it was just like, uh, it was rewarding. Honestly, that summer, I'd say hard work, I guess, if I had a single answer is what I took most away from that summer. What were they having you do in terms of like day to day? Like, are you talking about a lot of tracking, a lot of like point drill, a lot of like on the field reps? Like what, what type of ass beating are we talking about here? Yeah, I think, you know what I remember as a quad drummer is that <laughs> we only used stands for eight on a hand because it was a mixed meter exercise. And that was the only reason only yeah. ever, unless we were in subs, like in spring training was the only time they had like subsections with stands. Other than that, it was like we played ace and then they're like, okay, put them on. Mm -hmm. Even for like double B. I think like every other exercise was <laughs> in four four. So we tracked it all the time or we did point drill. We did a lot of point drill. So like literally just physical physical shape. I think it was probably in like the best shape marching and playing mm -hmm. I've ever been up to that point. I remember like we spent a lot of time focusing on the marching, obviously, but you know maybe versus my experience at Crossman, it wasn't highlighted as much as it was that summer. And I really got like a culture shock about how important it is and how strong you have to be. Yeah. I, I guess point drill is what I remember the most about like <laughs> every single morning we played eights and that was the best part because we couldn't march to it. And then we picked up the drums immediately. Yeah. Thankfully we were playing on Yamaha's and not like the crazy Pearl. Right. chorus like we would now, but yeah, that was the summer I definitely learned about, muscle groups and like how strong your legs have to be to march quads, you know, cause we had some intense drill to a crown as you know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Leon was still there. And right. I mean, they were, they were peak drill sort of, you know, the new cadets, 100%. new age cadets. Something that just came to mind when you were talking was um, how football players have ballet as part of their conditioning. Um, you know, I feel like the experience you're describing is like the strength and conditioning part right. of your journey where it's just, 
meat and muscle and stamina and you know getting physically strong and of course like you can't get physically strong without getting mentally stronger too i don't even think that needs to be said but that takes dedication on some level so i think that there's always you don't see a lot of people who have put that time into like put their bodies right like you know because you're you're doing a lot of running and that does take a lot of mental strength so that it it elevates what you can withstand. So it's interesting because you go from this really like meaty, strong, like strength-based experience. And now you're going into UNT and, uh, and Phantom at the time with yeah. Paul. So like, I feel like this is the ballet. So like, I want to, I want to like hear, um, because this is the like mind blowing stuff that like, I just feel like people miss. And like, I, my experience lacked was like, what was the ballet in that experience? Like what was, that process of like you had built up and now you have to almost like refine yourself to this thing that's like accurate and musical and like you're thinking outside the box of like what can be heard or like what can be expressed from the marching side like what what was that like those 30 minute one-on-ones in full rehearsal <laughs> yeah the the ballet lessons were just listening skill lessons period i mean like 100 percent. it wasn't like i don't remember many moments where paul Rana came up to me and personally like Matt Penland clearly you can't you don't have the chops to play that that's never been the thing because I so front so front loaded that my career as a high schooler you know all the way up to that point so Mm -hmm. for me it was all about like can you tune in your ears can you really find the exact volume that this guy's playing with the exact tone quality you know on that like on drum two exactly perfectly clean before we move it around it was like a lot of that you play together why is it not the same and trying to evaluate that like in the moment yeah and going into my first summer at, at phantom regiment it was 2009 yeah it was a huge huge learning experience for me just standing next to um i stood next to dan rainbow that summer maybe i would still say the best quad drummer i had ever seen in my life it, yeah just incredible he didn't do a lot of solos and things so maybe he his name recognition isn't there but you should look him up he's on youtube he, what um, years did he march those phantom lines because he was in like the beast like was it like five six seven eight nine like what was yeah. that Six, seven, eight, nine, ten was the five years he marched fandom. And he was section leader seven, eight, nine, ten. And I for sure, like I would say like seven and ten are two of like my probably some of the mm-hmm. best, best drum lines. Like that two thousand seven drum line is six and seven just like captures everything you can do in a group. I mean, damn. And and then ten, of course, like like I just feel like you know we talked about this, but like that seven line, like they're they play super loud, like it's it's just a crazy thing that they were doing, and like the the chops of all those guys, like I, I just feel like those lines, like I really was so into that, and that was like for me, like the way they played, like so physical, like just a very express, like physical and expressive way. But anyway, I don't want to get off off the rails. Dan Rainbow, shout out. Yeah. Hopefully he'll he'll hear this. Hopefully, yeah. Um... I just think that summer 2009, you know, I knew I had the chops to play everything. So I I was good. I kind of, you understand you're in that. Sometimes you're like in the drum line section later, but you're not the take. You're just there. Yeah. It was like not a difficult summer for me, but it was a super high, just like intensity learning experience standing next to one of the, like the best drummer I'd ever heard on quads. And just like, he was a great section leader and really understanding and always so patient with me. Just like would lean over and be like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And you just kind of check in with me. And then the longer in the summer, I remember just like having some like really amazing reps 
And I would think like, wow, I think I didn't mess up at all. And he would turn to me and be like, did you, that was so amazing. Let's remember that. <laughs> just like, it was like really, um, sort of not comforting, but just like, it was just nice to know that I was like actually developing my listening skills over the course of the whole summer, just because I heard, I had something wrong to sit next to you for so long that you right. kind of forced into it. And he had such high standards and obviously like the group as a whole was so good. It had high standards and me being in not a stressful position. Cause I was kind of in that middle ground of players that I could just like get cultivate that learning or that listening um, skill. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that year secretly was like what made me the best player I could be. It was just that weird in between your people don't remember 2009 very much. We weren't, I was going to say, I was going to say like, why, why is that year? Cause I, I obviously want to talk about 10 and 11. I feel like those two years with, with the, that team is like obviously really, important um but like why is that year 09 kind of like a standout in terms of like just not a super great year but i'm sure you guys were awesome i just don't know like because i obviously agree i'm just not sure why yeah i i mean part of it might have just been like the full core placement i think we got ninth by the end of the season so uh, just we weren't going on as late and things like that i think yeah mine was great and the music was really cool the drum break with some big crazy fast single passages you know we we're like working on certain skills Quad line was really good. I don't know. I think maybe not a memorable violin. You know, people maybe just remember the title, but I don't know. It's worth looking up. The, the, definitely the percussion section was really good. The front ensemble, I remember that summer was like rock solid. It was so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tyler Samus had a crazy uh, Tiffany solo. You should look up some cre- this jazz movement. And he had a solo walking bass line on Tiffany. So check it out. Shout out Tyler. Tyler, what's up? Um, I know, I know he's going to listen to this one. (laughs) Um, So, so that's a great transition into, you know, my first year DC, I was 10. Um, So I, you know, when you're not marching and you can definitely test this, when you're not marching, you're watching this stuff go down and you're just like, this drum line's awesome. This drum, you're like way more objective. And then once you get into it, at least for, you know, for me, um, just like how, how I guess I naturally am. And just like the groups I was in, like it went tunnel vision, you know, it was like, we're the shit, we're the best, even though we're not winning, we're better than them. And like, here's why. And you just go into that mode. I'm definitely like that, even as a teacher, as you well know. Um, but, uh, you know, like in 10, uh, I was marching Cavaliers, which was Mike McIntosh's first year. And that was, uh, Paul's last year at, at Phantom after, he had been there since 2003, um, I believe. So that's something like an eight-year stint around there. Um, so that was sort of the pinnacle maybe of what he was doing there, or at least the end. And then I was there for the beginning of, of Mike McIntosh's thing. And we ended up one and two at the end. But I just remember uh, – and that's in drums. And I just remember competing against you guys. And we're just like – I was just like, you know, it's another year. It's another Paul year. And, like, they're good and clean, whatever. And then afterwards – seeing the videos from finals the tuning and what you guys are playing and just like the sound like it was so next level um was that line just super stacked because i know like nick taylor and you and jonathan and jared courts went that year and all there was just like a lot of dudes like is that just one of those like special years where like people accumulated uh was did it feel different maybe because it was like paul's last year like what why does 2010 stand out and it's so in contrast to the year before. It's like pretty interesting, right. actually. I don't know. I, I guess definitely the, there was a lot of the same membership from 2009. I, like almost everyone that could, you know, return did almost like as a vengeance, like we can do better than this. You know, yeah. like, we can we can place better than this. And um, we 
and I guess just to, we didn't know it was going to be pause last year. I mean, even at the end of the season, I remember like thinking I was going to go back to Phantom Camp in November, Whoa. you know, and then we found out, you know, a couple months, maybe a month later. Um, yeah, definitely was an older group, I think, you know, with, with Nick Taylor being section leader, a lot of old like uh, age house in the snare line and the, and the quad line was like 20, 21, 21, 20 year olds and all had crazy amounts of experience. The one like rookie on the quad line, Daniel Cannon had marched infinity indoor for like six seasons or something. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't really, yeah, he was very he was good. Over it. Yeah. He was really good. It was like just ridiculously stacked like, by coincidence. It just happened to work out that nobody really aged out in 2009 and Nick Taylor just like slid into the section leader role. You know, I, I do this a lot, but I do get like, specifically, you know, his leadership was part of it for sure. He just had like this crazy intensity, like what he wanted it to be and just never let it get below that. And he would really be vocal about it in an awesome way. And he was just, just really well respected amongst his peers. I don't remember many people like nobody would like shrug him off or think he was being too intense. Everyone would kind of rise to the occasion. And it just like worked really well. Right. Nick marched. I think Nick marched something like oh six seven Boston, which are two at least oh seven, which is like people don't know. But those are like years Omar wrote. And those drum lines were super sick tuning beats approach still still relevant. And then he went on to march oh eight blue coats. Right. Yeah. Which is like legendary, obviously. And then oh nine and then ten, obviously. So it was like he was bringing that quality through those groups and um 10 yeah like for sure there was there's the drum lines you feel where they're like clean but they don't have the engine of the tempo and you could tell i feel like from him out there was like that drive of like i can play not only in time but like i can choose how i play and that brings this it makes the sound just more vertical and more like predictable and like a machine i feel like that was something that stood out with that years like that drive was definitely in there so it sounds like possibly related to that yeah and also like I would be remiss not to like say, especially in the front ensemble as well, there was like just the number of vets, the number of like friendships and cohesion from North Texas. Yep. And we had for years, I mean, we spend a lot, a lot of time in full percussion ensemble, especially in 2010. I just remember like every block we're in percussion ensemble or full ensemble. That's it. So we're playing together constantly doing standstills. You like know each other's parts so well, maybe it, the summer and we just had tons of time together that it, it, it got so cohesive by the end of the season that it was like never much of a question, you know, between the whole group. It really shouldn't be understated at all. Like the personality thing is just where you're going to go. It's like your ceiling. It's, and I've certainly talked about it on this and other podcasts, but just like all the talent in the world will never trump people getting along. And I feel like, that's super important. And everything I've ever heard about Paul, especially is like, he really fosters the full percussion ensemble environment and the importance of like every role. Um, and even the way he writes and that Sandy writes, you just feel like there's so much care put in at everything. Everything matters. There's not really anything that's thrown away. And that people, it's like weird because you, you unfortunately don't see percussion ensembles play in the, in the lot almost ever. Um, right. That's I know you all did, but yeah, that summer specifically, the pit would roll to wherever we could. I'm not sure if we broke some rules on that, you know, or they didn't have as many <laughs> rules in 2010, but we used to walk as far as we had to 
and we would just get arc it behind the pit and do one full run through. That's always the last thing we did, if possible, every show. And that was always, aside from just like being hyped at the end of the lot. Mm-hmm. So it was just like reminded everyone of what the full project was and what the goal was. And obviously it had helped the front ensemble, like get some reminders about the parts and stuff in their ears right before the show. Yeah, it was all, I, that was always like such an invaluable resource. It's way harder to do now with the bigger shows and the bigger stadiums. But I miss being able to do that at, during warmups. I mean, damn, in high school, we used to do full band lot. And yeah, exactly. it honestly, is, it's just a lot of fun. And I do think like we get into the drumline zone where it's like it's so separate. And I even think like some of the way things are designed, it's not through the lens of like the percussion caption it's through the lens of the drum line and the pit it's it's not this is the a singular product and these voices all add up to create a singular product and that is sometimes because it's normal that the drum line arranger is separate than the than the front arranger obviously if you're married to the front arranger it probably really really helps a lot um i also think there are arrangers like you know Tom Rarick, of course, um, who's like in your, is it unit? I don't know what the right word is. I'm, I apologize. He's in the Air Force Band, or he was. He, yeah. just, he just retired. Oh, he did? Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the best judges, one of the best arrangers, but like because he writes the front and the battery at Bluecoats, it just really works from the jump. I mean, there's just something about it. And, you know, I wonder for, from your standpoint, um, you know, as an as an arranger now, like as your kind of main gig, do you feel like this experience in a more holistic ensemble has allowed you to take a different approach as a writer? Because I I do think like it's important to service the drum when you're writing the drum on stuff. It's like I want it to be cool on its own. So it's tough because you don't want it to feel like it's it's not fitting, but also you you want it to feel like it's giving the drum line what they need. So uh, it's just yeah. tough to to find how to do that. I would say literally that last sentence you said you just said it's like what I'm constantly trying to thread the needle with that is like making sure the drum line is interested, especially if it's like a high school group. I'm trying to make sure the kids aren't if it's like a competitive high school group and they're going to compete at BOA, that the program coordinator is not gonna come down on me and say like, Yeah, I get what you're doing, but that's ridiculous. You're just gonna you can't hear the woodwind to me from time to time. Just say yep. but yeah, it's uh it's a huge deal. I mean I I, I really try hard to like when I finish writing a section, I'll, you know, it's a bailiff. I'm, I'm trying to highlight the full percussion and see what that sounds like together. That That's more important to me than what the four or the three or four battery staves sound like to me, to be honest, right. nowadays, you know, because that's, I try to think about like if it was a percussion ensemble piece, you know, would it be interesting? Maybe that could be standalone and, and that would be cool, but yeah, it's, I'm lucky that I write most of my music with Tyler Sammons, you know, and we've been, He's literally the best man at my wedding. We've been best friends for like 20 years, you know? So that helps. We're not married, but we talk so often. <laughs> we, text, we like text back and forth about certain measures and things like that. Cause we, cause we know we have the same background. So we have the same goals in mind and that certainly helps. And there are a couple groups that I, a couple high school groups where I write the full percussion and that's always like, yeah, I guess I certainly am trying to, think about how it lines up all together i never i don't think i ever just go through and just write the battery and just write the pit i'm i'm, I'm like poking all over the place and then at some point i just fill in all the gaps because mm-hmm. you know in my head i know what i want the listener to listen to depending on the section i'm not sure if it always comes across 
hence threading the needle. But right. in my head, I, I have it jumping between sections often so that, you know, both get noticed, but it's still a single product. I wonder, like, it's it's interesting because, like, you know, I, I'm writing now. I'm, I'm writing for Hurricanes, and I actually just finished season one of ever writing a full book, which is kind of crazy. But, yeah, it's cool. Like, I love it. Um, I obviously, like, love drumline music, and I'm capable of writing it. But I never, you know, Travis is my Tyler, so he writes. You know, and we have Paul, so, like, he writes. But, like, I obviously, like, can and, and like to do that. And it's been super interesting, like, what – what comes out in the writing, you don't always know where it's going to go and like where the influence comes from. And I always ask people like, where's your influence come from? And it's like, you kind of don't know until you like get in there. And I was just like, interesting to see what emerged out of just the process of writing. It's not like I sat there and I was like, I'm going to do this or like, here are the exact choices I'm going to make. It was just like, here's what I feel like is flowing and feels good. And I guess my point is like, it's interesting because like, I obviously don't have a a musical background in the way you do even close. I mean, you have your masters and your bachelors, both in music and your, your virtuosic understanding of keyboard playing. How do you feel like that affects your perspective on the drumline thing? Cause I'm just like trying to see through your filter of being and your perspective. And it's like, wow, like how does my masters in English affect my drumline right you know what i mean it's like yeah, yeah. it's it's super di- like we're literally doing the same thing sometimes but like how we go how we got to it is pretty different on, on a lot of levels or like how we spend our time so i just wonder like what do you think like how did like, that keyboard knowledge the concert snare the just the percussion knowledge informs what you're doing when you're writing for a drumline yeah I, I guess the first thing this is not directly answering your question but the first thing i think about when you when you say like, I do have two degrees in music, that's all great. But sometimes even within the music community, I'm like a little self-conscious, like, well, I don't have a composition degree. You know, like <laughs> I don't really, I could, I sometimes I wish I could like get another composition degree. So that would really help me understand some of the more intricate harmonies and stuff and be better right. at the front ensemble stuff. But because I don't have a composition degree, especially when I'm writing keyboard parts, I'm approaching it like a hundred percent, probably just from like how it feels, how it lays, like, probably I write too idiomatically, you know what I mean? Where I, I have a marimba in my house and I'll run to the basement and play it on the marimba and make sure it like feels like I'm a percussionist playing a marimba solo, Mm -hmm. which probably limits me sometimes compositionally, but same thing, same thing on battery and especially quad parts. You know, I, I'm usually like playing every single thing I write right here in my bedroom to make sure it like feels a certain way as a player. Does this feel cool? Does this sticking work? And maybe sometimes I over-prioritize that rather than like, let's just play the rhythm that makes the <laughs> But I'm like really stuck on this paradiddle idea because it feels so cool with this scraping yeah. sound, you know what I mean? So I have to fit it in. And those are um, also, thankfully, sometimes the responses I get from like Tyler would be like, yeah, for like his high school band show, would be like, yeah, can we just do like way less notes right here <laughs> on this drum break? And I was like, yeah, sorry, you got me. I just thought it felt cool, but doesn't really make sense you get too in your head about the playing part of it so that's something i that could be that i like about my experience but maybe takes me down too far down a rabbit hole sometimes Hmm. you know what i mean yes i do i totally understand and that's interesting and i I mean i really feel like the playability part it does affect the cleanliness at the end and it affects the enjoyment the player has like i do think that's something travis has always done well is understand what feels good sometimes more than like 
for me, like sometimes I like playing weird stickings and like, you know, for whatever reason, like that's just what was embedded in me through like my experiences. And I think he has a great sense of like what feels really good um, and what, what what is player friendly. And I do think that that can matter more or less in certain situations. Like Tim Jackson, for example, he's 100 percent that. Like that's all it seems like he is interested in doing is like unfolding these like ways your hands can bounce. Like I never played a to chut until Rhythm X 2011 and he would write, you know, a right accent, a low left flam, and then a right tap. And it would be like, with the middle flam. And I was like, what in the world? But then you realize it's actually just a Swiss with like a displaced grace note. And it's like, whoa, like you're, you wrote something that is like this, but what it does is make your hands bounce like this. And it's like a whole new idea, like to get back to what you're talking about with like the solo stuff. And I think that is a different corner of drumming. That's like really special is like not actually prioritizing just like how it fits in his musical and like brings the light motif back in or whatever, which is always dope. And that's like, there's so many great arrangers who do that, but there's also like the, just the pattern and like the way that like, like you're saying with quads, like the around or the bounce or the flow of it superseding, like this musicality, like I think that can work and there is a place for that. Yeah. I think, you know, as I'm still young in my arranging career, I would consider, you know, the thing that I'm always still trying to work on is finding when to do that and when to Mm -hmm. bring back the light routine, you know, like literally I'm still really trying to find that 50, 50 balance in my own writing and in like my solo writing and everything. Cause yeah, there's, there's a time and place for both. You know, when I was in music school and, and you're trying to pick marimba solos, you're like playing a new marimba solo every single semester or whatever. <laughs> in my head, I would kind of, you could tell there's like the classification of marimba solos that are written around a permutation that are like yeah. idiomatic written by a marimba player. And then there's like the most beautiful harmonies you've ever heard in your life. That's written by like, just a composer who has no percussion experience and they don't always right. play well, but I would always like try to remind myself to go that direction because of my, really because of my marching experience. Like this would be great and I could learn it in a week, but this isn't going to help me. I got to mm-hmm. like, focus on the harmonies and the corrals and all the stuff that's going to feel awkward, but sound amazing. You know, I, I would try to steer that way when I had the options usually. Which is honestly like not the most normal thing to do. And I feel like, you, the, you clearly made some really like mature decisions as a student through your whole process. I think that's obvious in how far you were able to get as an individual performer and how you're able to now maintain that, which I think is something special to you as a teacher is like, you're still practicing. You've gotten yourself to a point where like it's in there and it probably takes you like, you got to warm up obviously. But I know when you, when you're ready to go and you're playing, you can still do the things, you know, at least from my perspective, but like you, and you'll probably argue against it, but like you can still get the sound to happen. You know what I mean? Like that's not, you know, we get old man hands or whatever. I feel like you have not gone through that process yet. From my perspective, though. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I would say that I, I guess if I'm being kind to myself, I'd say I haven't yet either. But, no, you know, I do practice quads a lot because it seems like I end up giving like a quad clinic or some quad performance like every year since I aged out. So I always have like a reason to keep practicing. Like right now, I'm, I'm practicing quads every day because I have a pace clinic on quad drumming specifically and it's a clinic slash performance so i'm playing like 25 minutes of music Mm -hmm. i'm literally like writing pieces doing things and trying to stay in shape but also i'm lucky performing arts job i mean i'm not like playing you know i'm not chopping out at work but i am like 
touching drumsticks and playing four mountain room parts like every single week. Mm-hmm. So it, it's never like disappears. I'm always keeping that bass layer at work to teach George Mason, you know, and demonstrate something. Yeah. At least I, I'm never like, Oh, six. I'm like, oh, I did this this morning. I just got to mm-hmm. play a different, I just got to play something in the next level harder. You know, what are you doing for the, for PASIC? Yeah. So for PASIC, I'm presenting like a quad clinic performance, but the clinic part portion of it, I'm trying to focus on, it's called quad drumming from all angles. I'm just trying to talk about quad drumming from the perspective of a player, a teacher and a composer. Since mm-hmm. you know, those are the, my three wheelhouses, the three wheelhouses, but I just feel like yeah. I've had a, a lot of in-depth experience in all three and maybe like plenty to bring up common issues and like, how would, how did I get through them as a player? What do I tell my students now to kind of Jedi mind trick them into playing well? And how can you prevent those problems by writing something different, possibly, you know, mm. hoping to kind of cover all of those things. In addition to just, I'm just going to play and, and hopefully give some people some ideas through my playing. I'm playing some of my own compositions and I'm writing like three new ones for the uh, performance. I'm going to play a duet that I recently came out with, with Kaylee um, Brooke. And yeah, just try to give like a wider range of options for quad drumming. And I feel like I wish people viewed quad drumming as, it sounds like so nerdy, but like just as an art form or as an instrument, like mm-hmm. use like concert snare drum and marimba and vibes. And, you know, like, like what I was talking about at the beginning where I practiced it just like another instrument in, in college was like the point of practicing marimba every day is you're just like trying to master the instrument. Like I'm just trying to be a, an amazing, the best marimba player I can be. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I approach quads that way. And I don't see everyone do that. They're just like, okay, I'm just going to be able to play the sh- but you don't just have like a full understanding of the instrument as an instrument. And that's what the highest level of players do is like, I can't just play my exercise packet in my book. Like I have a full understanding of how to play every script you can possibly do or every crossover you can ever possibly do. And that was like always my goal slash still is with quads is just to be like a virtuoso on the instrument period. Right. I, I think, um, first of all, I agree. I, I feel like when I was, a, a member trying to make it, you know, like pre DCI, it was just like so much time spent drumming on a drum. It was just like, I want to be able to play everything and as fast as possible, not necessarily as quiet as possible at that point um, or ever while I was marching. Cause that's not really a thing that people are asking me to do, but um, you know, it's like, I, I feel like you're trying to get to every corner I wonder, and the, you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, be apocalyptic, but like I've judged like three times now, um, three separate occasions this fall. And I've seen about one to two quad lines in the fall. And like, you know, we've had some conversations just like behind the scenes about like it kind of going away as an art form because it's so physically demanding um, and it's difficult to, to do. And it's like, I'm not concerned but i just see a pattern of like whether it's less quad players the people who are quad players like can't actually drum like there's been a lot of that like crown individuals all right play eight flam drags on the two drum can't do it and it's like pretty good players like people we're considering like haven't drummed on one drum i just wonder like where is that going how do we like make sure that the art form as you're discussing it, you know, either it gets revived or sustained because it is hard. Like I, I just worried, like 
it's not cool to get your ass beat anymore. You know, it's like, that's not something that's as popular. It's not as acceptable. And I just want to make sure like amazing quad, like who's going to be the next amazing quad drummer. Who's that next generation? Um, because there's less people that seem to pursue it. Yeah. I've thought about this. Yeah. For countless hours. I I mean, I will say (laughs) in terms of high school drum lines, you know, I, and I'm judging too. I just this past weekend and there's a couple, I think of two groups with no quads and I get it. Like if you have to cut a section, yeah, cut, cut the quads for sure. Of the first, if you got to do something, I'm, I'm not like going right. to lie and say, I did the same thing when I taught in Texas for a year. Like we didn't have enough kids, Yep. but I mean, I do think if you have the numbers, it, it adds so much to the sound. And it's the whole middle range that you don't have with the snares and bass drums. You know, it's important to have it. Um, in terms of the number of quad drummers, this is such a cop up, but I just think there's less quad drummers in every drum line in the world than there are snare drummers. So there's literally just less people to pick from at all times. Mm-hmm. So what do you say? Like, you know, there's a certain percentage of snare drummers that probably can, are like really high level players, like say 15%. That same 15% of quad drummers is just literally a lower number of people. For sure. You always have trouble finding, harder time finding quad text like in drum corps and WGI and getting people to commit because it's just not as many people to pick from. Are you looking for a high quality apparel made exclusively for the marching arts? That Dan Band Show is brought to you by Lot Riot Apparel. Lot Riot was founded by a drum corps alumni with a mission to create the premier apparel brand in the marching arts. And he definitely accomplished that goal. There's no other brand out there like Lot Riot. No matter what band event you go to, you will see Lot Riot clothing being worn by members, fans, and instructors alike. It is literally everywhere. Lot Riot is the brand that bonds the marching arts community together. They have a passion for band and have a real stake in their customers and the activity. With Lot Riot, you're part of a greater whole, a group of friends, a community. I love Lot Riot because they draw on a minimalistic streetwear aesthetic and use high quality materials to create cool, comfortable clothing. Their brand fits my personal style super well, which is why I am proud to have Lot Riot as a personal sponsor, as well as a sponsor of this podcast. Lot Riot is currently offering listeners of That Dan Band Show 15% off all purchases on LotRiot.com. Simply go to LotRiot.com and use the code DANBAND, one word, at checkout and you will receive 15% off everything you buy. But that's not all. Listeners of the podcast use the code DANBAND will also receive an exclusive Lot Riot That Dan Band Show pin and sticker pack for free. So go to LotRiot.com right now to get 15% off your order and a free sticker and pin pack using the code Why are the snare drums a popular crowd? See you in the lot. Just because the notes? Well, I think the notes and just like, I mean, you have to admit what you said. It's just like physically challenging. Way easier. It's just way easier to carry. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Like, I think that it's a lot of like when you first pick quads as an instrument, it's either because you saw it as like a middle school kid and you thought it was the coolest thing ever, or like you got told you have to play it because nobody, there's not room on the stair line. And you just kind of, mine was a little bit like that. I remember thinking it was cool, but also there was like, there was two openings in the quad line when I was like a freshman. So that's like what it was going to be. And then I just continued on that path. But the physicality of it is, you know, it's an issue that I think uh, like drum companies try to deal with. I mean, that's like a huge selling point, you know, on every single new like generation of quads, like dynasties spent forever trying to like 
they like hollowed out the lugs, used different types of metal to how can we get rid of as much weight as possible to mm-hmm. make a more accessible instrument. And playing on stands makes it accessible. You know, that's always fun. And that's like a good way to start. But yeah, I, I don't, I haven't found like an easy answer or, or easy solution to like, okay, you're, you're a freshman and you're playing quads and here's the first basics block. There's like never an easy solution other than like presenting things to them that they know they need to work on, like physical exercises they know they need to do and, and just make, make it abundantly clear that that needs to happen now. And you can't, you can't just like throw away your, your physical fitness. Like you, maybe you could as a snare drummer in high school, you kind of like figure it out and you can make it work. You just can't do that as a quadrum. It's just not an option. You're going to hurt yourself, you know? And for the record, don't do that for snare drum either. I think, I know, but I'm saying, I feel so like you important. can get away with it. You can, yeah. you can, you definitely can. I mean, they're not heavy and I carried a 13 inch snare drum at United and it was, oh. so, it was actually hard to march with cause it was too light. And I just love when you, it was, it was so light. And like, I love like quad drummers who learn how to hold the drums. Like there's been some people like, and I'm sure you were like this, but like marching with Dean or like marching with like Alex Beltran and De- sorry, Dean Hickman, I should say, yeah. or Alex Beltran. Like those are people who, they learned how to hold those drums and they were better visually than the snare drummers because of that. You know what I mean? Like there are some like quad people that they learn how to own the weight of it and they move like fantastically. Like they get super strong and like, they're just like the studs of the drum line visually. And I, I'm so hype about that. Like that's, that's where I would be at as a quad drummer. Um, and I think the, um, another like solution that you would probably like agree with that's within our means is not writing the drum line as like the snares do the hardest stuff and play the most. The quads outline the snare part and do the next amount. The basses play the least and they're the least important with the worst kids. Like that's just a misfire. I feel like even like if I were a high school band director, I'd try to place students where they were most naturally acclimating, whether it's size-based, whether it's like their ability to like play rhythms as a bass drummer, their touch on it, whatever, but I wouldn't, I feel like there's a hierarchy even to the the design level of drum lines and it trickles all the way down to now what we're saying, which is like, it's less cool to be a quad drummer than it is a snare drummer because like as snare drummer, you're like, I'm in the front and play the most parts. So I think if we, we look at how important the voicing of the battery is and we give everyone their due, students will be attracted to, to each of those things because there's like a character trait that is required in all those sections. Yeah. Let me just say, if there's anyone listening to the podcast who's a band director who's not a percussionist, I would I I, I wouldn't say I put this into practice. Well, it depends on the group, but like, yeah, what's the section you're going to hear no matter what they play? The freaking bass drums. Basses. That's what you're going to hear no matter what in a band, you know, in a high school band. What's the section that's not going to overpower the woodwinds? The quads, right? If you write it appropriately, you snare drummer snares can play on the edge of pianissimo and it's still going to get cut because you can't hear. Yes, the it is. Lines. <laughs> but if you if you need to keep time going and you need to like not worry about the front to back timing, put the quads on Spock or do some groove, find some way to keep them under the texture because they kind of blend in with that middle sound. There's a use for all of them. And that's a reason to have strong players in every section. Snares are going to be snares. You're going to hear the snares no matter what they play. We get that. You know what I mean? And they have a time and a place, especially like timing issues. They will fix all that stuff. But sometimes playing the most notes. Yeah. I agree. It can go too far and sends the wrong message. And it's like the snares have certain pillars of what they can do. It can be dynamic to a certain extent. We can be um, 
you know, we can use speed and density. Um, and then of course like rhythm and timing, but there is that melodic part that just, it's so cool. Like I love quad writing. That's simple. Like that's some of the stuff like Mac wrote when I was in Cavaliers, where it's like, you know, bang, bang, ding, like, it's just like, what is the song? Like, I feel like when you can make it sing songy as a, as uh, you know, playing quads or, or bass drum, when you get those moments where it's like just musical and you can just, it's more listenable. There's not a lot of snare stuff. That's just straight up. Like, this is cool. You know what I mean? It's so technical and requires so much like process and analysis. Whereas like if like some simple quad stuff is just super cool. Like that electric wheelchair thing is so iconic. Like that one uh, mute part is just like, come on. Like it's almost never, it's like hard to top just that because it's so simple, you know? Yeah. The the melodic possibilities of quads is what makes it unique for sure. I mean, this is like one of the topics I, I like to cover when I give quad clinics is like when you're writing quad music, you got to mm-hmm. decide if you want it to be visual or lyrical because there's two elements to quad drumming. It, it shouldn't always be one way or the other, but you need to like always consider both sides of that scale when you're writing anything for quads, period. Like any measure, I consider that. I, I mean, I'm always in front of, you know, my computer airing it out and then I play the playback and I realize like, well, that sounds, I try to make it look hard and it sounds so dumb. It's like, right you got to balance it on everything. Right. And a lot of times I think it, it can work together. I think there, there is a cross section where it it can be the both, but like for sure, quad drummers don't like this. Like, yeah, that's uh yeah. that's descending. But if you know, if you're on the inside, you don't write that. Like there's so many other ways to descend or to use the voicing. That's more interesting. And just the open like this is just not very, you know what I mean? And like, to be fair, we did do a lot of that at Cavaliers. It was like simple tone out, you know, tonality and just up and down the drums. Um, and that was just like what it was um, versus thinking about the flow and thinking about what's not like, it's hard not to end down on the four drum. I feel like I found myself writing and it was always like going to the left. I was like, I really don't want the quad line to constantly end just on the left side of the drums. And I know that's like, kind of ding dong but it's like it it's so repetitive how do i go and end up on the three and go that direction i don't know if that's like a con is that a common issue when you're writing you're like we got to use a three drum how do we get over here uh yeah, yeah you <laughs> nailed it and i'm not even kidding like that the three drum is like a, i feel like it's a joke at least in my circle of friends that are quad drummers that the three drum is just like the most neglected but if you're a quad yeah. drummer writing it you i i definitely try to take the time to almost like tonic dominant type of thing where like if i if you know the phrase isn't quite over, but there's like some type of half peak I always yes. end it on drum three to make it, hmm. you can hear it, you know, release down to drum four. That's like a really common technique that I use to, and it gives, you know, the players a full range of the drums more often. Cause I agree. Like sometimes when I was a player, I would always like roll my eyes. Like, okay, cool. Drum four again. One, one, two, 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 four, four, instead of one, one, two, two, three, three. Drummer. It's like, all right. Right, you're going instead of it's like I wonder is that just is it just something to do with like how you flow from the I'm confused as to why we don't use the three drum is it just taboo like why is that 
I know. I think. I, I mean, I think because if you're like hearing the quads in the context of a phrase, you're using the drum for a couple times, so that just always sounds like, like that is the time. The note. You know, that's yes. just how we tune the drums. That is the end. So it, mm. it's a sense of like there is no sense of resolution until you get to that drum four, and that's how, I agree with that statement. I mean, there is not a sense of resolution, mm. but like sometimes you don't need it to resolve. You know what I mean? Don't we end? We don't end every single thing on bass five. Well, you shouldn't, in my opinion. You know, there's times to end it on three and four and things like that for that same compositional technique, you know. That's definitely interesting. I'm going to for sure steal that because I had not thought about sort of like the penultimate versus the right. ultimate and the way you can tier that almost over time, like longer than just every phrase has to go all the way down or all the way back up. It actually doesn't, right? Because yeah. how many fr- how many phrase endings are you actually writing in a single movement? It's, uh, it's not that many there's like small ones or there's more macro phrasing so that's that's super interesting i want to go back to something to totally wrap back because i feel like this is part of your journey and it's part of like the journey of marching and coming up through different groups and adapting um and just how you've been able to adapt to all these different experiences that you have and you're succeeding at um that transition from the super iconic line phantom 2010 hopefully everyone that's listening has gone and checked all of that out if they haven't they need to and then they can watch cavaliers 2010 after that uh but not first um but going from phantom 2010 and then you're you're one of the the people who is in the transition when the renics go to uh vanguard and you know the the transition was not as just perfect as it probably could have been it's not like you know came out and beat everyone's asses it was just another year i feel like phantom had a very specific sort of orchestral sound with their brass that the renix learned how to live inside of and then going to vanguard there's like a different identity around just the design and the core how much of a culture shock was it even though you had the same structure with the renix and probably a lot of the same teammates was it like a crazy transition now being in Vanguard, which is like such a different core and has has deep roots in the activity too? Um, I mean, it was definitely a culture shock. I, I would say I remember like the day that we found out about it. You know, when I was in school, Jonathan Leo was like one of my best friends and we were drumming. We were probably literally, I think we were like drumming together, you know, like practicing that day. And we found out that, uh, that they were going to switch cores. And at first I was just like so excited to just try another place. You know, that was like, would have been my fourth or it was my fourth drum course. So it wasn't a new mm-hmm. thing to me <laughs> to come yeah. to a new drum corps, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it was just like exciting yeah. that I was like, you know, if I can make it work, I can go to California and, and Vanguard had such a storied history that I know that you're the same as me, that you watch Vanguard like 04 and 03 and stuff. Oh yeah. Kid. Like, Oh yeah. Idolize those groups, even though I didn't really play in that same style, but, just the thought of maybe being part of that legacy was so exciting. I think for everyone, that was like the first thing all of us talked about. I was like, oh my God, we can like be part of that drumline legacy, which mm. is already so, so storied. We got to like take it really seriously and really like rise to the occasion. I think once once we got with the group and started rehearsing like the, the winter camps, I hope this isn't like a, a letdown answer, but it kind of felt the same once we're there. <laughs> like, well, you know, we had the same staff we had, Paul and Sandy still there in like the group, not like all the members were the same, but just like how we ran the group and the type of like the goals and the type of music we're playing it, it all kind of locked back in. It just seemed like the next season and we just need to be better than we were the previous season. Right. You know, that certainly was the goal as we were like comparing it to 
Phantom 2010, let's, we, that's our goal. We, that's the standard. You know, that was the best drum line the previous summer. Let's be that same thing this summer. You know, maybe we didn't quite make it to that same level, but it's certainly the way I treated it. And I think that most of us treated it that were carried over. You should check out uh, Vanguard 2011 videos too, if you didn't check those out. Another year that I speci- specifically remember the front ensemble was like, just killer. The music was mm-hmm. like, they had some insane 16th note, like crazy chromatic stuff that was so fun to listen to. Like I had so much fun that summer playing in full percussion ensemble because of just like the percussion ensemble. It just felt like we were playing a percussion ensemble piece and being able to listen to the keyword parts would get me more hyped for our next Spock roll. And so like, <laughs> I had so much fun doing that when you're close enough that you can hear the full thing yeah. versus when you're on the move and you're just stressed out about timing, you know? But like doing standstill beyond the pit that summer was so awesome. I'll never forget that. That year I feel like was kind of was just a strong year for a lot of groups. Um, I think we, you know, we won and I think devs might've gotten second. Hard for me to say, you know, love the blue devils, but it all kind of starts to bleed together for me um, with what they do. And it's always great. They always like throw something out there. Like, what was that? But it kind of, you know, like it's hard for me to distinguish year to year for some of that, especially because I was marching. Um, the cadets actually, that was a super strong year. They won overall. They did the angels of demon thing and they, oh, yeah, yeah. they, they did some really, some really good stuff. Um, so there's some, you know, that was a, a strong year. And I feel like some, like this is a moment where the wheels like turning, I feel like for just, just DCI drumline, because once you guys get off and rolling past 2011, um, and I think 12 devs might've won the Sanford, but after that, it's been so dominant with Vanguard. I feel like this is like the best of, of all these different worlds with, um, you know, with Paul and Sandy just doing their thing. So consistent with so much insight into what works. And then with the visual team, Andy Toth and Bart and uh, Michael Gaines and Scott Coder. And that team is just work feels to me like it works really, really well. Um, I, di- I know Evan hasn't had his chance to do his thing yet necessarily full, full out, but sure. He's going to nail it. He's super smart. Um, but it feels like, I don't know, like you almost look back at those phantom years and you're like, I, I kind of like the way that the Renix even fit into Van- Vanguard now, like the contemporary Vanguard with the old Cavaliers team. It really works for me. I don't know how you feel or, you know, I know it's like apples to oranges, but um, what Michael Gaines, how he sets you guys up, it just works like amazingly well. Oh yeah. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I can't like speak for the design team. I'm certainly not a part of that process of Vanguard, but I mean, the products that we get to teach and get to work with have, have been so much fun. It, you're never like out on the field like oh man they didn't they really didn't think this through that's like uh-huh. it's like never an issue and you have no reason to question it because if you do you probably you like on a meal break you ask someone else this had a reason for this which had a reason for this and you're like oh never mind i get it totally get it zoom out immediately because there's a right. reason for everything you know and it's fun to be a part of that because i guess as a staff member it lets you just focus on your one job you know my job is specifically the battery more specifically usually just the quads depending on you know the time and it's just like made it less stressful i guess it's the biggest impact it's had on me it's just like makes it more fun to be a part of it and easier to focus on the thing your single task at hand because you trust everything above you is like working in total sync which is a nice feeling right i think what is special too is just the way they funnel alumni in so like 
you know exactly what's going on. You know what's coming. You know probably the idiosyncrasies of the teachers around you and the leadership and you know how to fit into that um, because that's your alumni group. So it's like, that's the world you came up in. Um, and to, to segue, you know, I think something that's been super cool that I've obviously personally experienced is watching you get an independent world phase of your career with Mason. Um, and I'm sure there's been so many different, you know, layers to that from your perspective, o- only some of which I'm aware of. Cause I, you know, I only know what I know, but, uh, how has it been kind of, you know, transitioning, um, from this, you know, this system that is so effective, you know, the, the Renick system and what you've done in DCI is just like unspeakably unparalleled really um now we fade we shift into indoor which is kind of a new space for you didn't march independent world it's 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 list of demands tends to be different or come in a different order what was that transition like you know 17 was our first year you know we get we kind of get rolling in 18 like it's just and you know we it took some years for us to kind of find our footing a little bit but from your perspective like how was it learning on the fly about independent world drumline. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I definitely had some uh, missteps the first season, just like trying to, like just weird logistical things, not understanding how WGI rehearsals work maybe, you know, or just like sure. rehearsals and not used to that schedule. But I guess, I think it, it just took me, the hardest part was just like understanding where I fit in and what I can provide most. Now that we're, this is year six, right? that mm-hmm. now that we're here i think i i completely understand and we've had the same team for a while like eventually where i've settled into the group and what the best information i could provide at the time and um yeah i say the last like three seasons has been totally comfortable knowing what i can and can't do and like not overstepping my boundaries and just giving as much to this section or knowing when to step back i've gotten better at that at mason specifically because I don't know, because of the way rehearsals are and the limited amount of time you have in WGI, know when to say something and when not to say something. And it, it's mm-hmm. just nice to be, it's nice for me personally role in indoor, you know, in terms of like the, the scheme of the staff than I am anywhere else. You know, at Mason, I am a certain thing. At Vanguard, I'm certainly a certain, a different thing. And then with all of the design team, another level. So Mason's somewhere in the middle and it's fun to be a part of that in that role. Yeah, I I love when you're doing the music ensemble thing and I feel like because you're not necessarily in on like the initial stage of something getting written, you're able to see it and it's just very carte blanche in terms of what you're looking for. It's like the way you're looking across the score and aligning things is so different than what I would be looking for. I'm like on this level of like the way they're performing it or the character, like just like trying to motivate the like energy of what the idea is supposed to be versus like making it sound exactly like it should sound. Uh, and I'm never able to get them totally there. That's not necessarily where I, what I'm supposed to be doing, but um, I always love, like, I, I remember in 2020 after the Richmond regional, oh, yeah. we were doing the closer for the outlaw. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, this is what this is supposed to sound like. You were just like, you're just rehearsing them in a very like, I, I don't want to like make it sound like you just make it simple for everyone. I feel like some, for some reason you're able to just be like, yeah, like here's, here's what it's on paper. Here's like that idea of pointing out voices and moments of alignment and bringing that out. I feel like has been 
so critical and I love just like getting in the room and playing together. I think that's been such a major part of our process all together is like, and you've always pushed that in any chance you, you could get to say like, can we do music ensemble? Like, I feel like we've integrated that into our practice because you're like, we need to play together more to understand our roles across the ensemble. And, you know, I'm, I come at this from a very like visual or like aesthetic perspective um and you've always come through with it like this is we can we are not beholden to like the rules of what we learned or like how to like play it's like and something that i've been doing teaching is like and this is like a dumb thing but like i think this is like a matt penley thing is like tell me when you can't hear this anymore so i'll just like play on a snare drum and i'll like play literally as quiet as you can play go to the front edge i'm like barely hitting it and it's, you can hear yeah. the drum. And it's like, I feel like at Mason, what we, it's super, super cool. Cause like what we want to do is take what you guys do at Vanguard and take what we do at crown and like merge them and like marry them and get like, be the most musical drum line with the top and bottom dynamic range where we're like, holy shit, they're loud. Holy shit. They're quiet. You know, like, and the aesthetic and the, the look and like the body part of it. And like, that's obviously like so different than maybe what, you know, the priorities are with, with Vanguard or like with any outdoor group, honestly, like the body thing's not as important, but it's been cool. Like, I, I feel like we're like super fortunate to have this like different groups of people, like between you and Paul and me and Travis, it's like so different in experience. And then we like come together and we're like trying to like create this hybrid thing. And I like, I don't know if we've done it yet. I would say I don't think we have. And and when we do, I think it's going to be pretty special. I'm like definitely feeling like right now where we finally designed for that. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think Outlaw was the closest maybe we would have gotten to that, you know, if the season had not been cut short. Also, let me just disclaimer that I I do not, I, didn't, I don't feel comfortable like presenting or claiming that I'm like bringing <laughs> the Vanguard technique to, George Mason, like no. such a team effort. I just like, I, I, right when you said that, I was like, oh, I feels like a lot of weight. On my That's not, you know, I don't claim to represent that in any way, a hundred percent, you know, but it's certainly no. the way, the way that I teach and the things that I say and, and the things that I value come from that so directly, obviously. And, and so true that my background comes from music rather than visual, my experience in college. And it's hard not to just like be so, like singularly focused on those type of things. And that's like what I was talking about. Like I found my place in the staff at Mason to be like, I can present different ideas about music that other people hadn't been thinking of, you know, and maybe at the first couple of years, I didn't know that other people weren't thinking about it. And then I say it and you and Travis are like, Oh, that's a great idea. Do I it. Of that. Yeah. So then, <laughs> so then eventually, you know, I've gotten to the point where I feel comfortable being like, let's try this, try this, try this and focus on like the cost of score. Like you're saying, and I like feeling that role. That's been fun. Absolutely. I just think it's important in any situation that there are counterpoints. And I know this isn't how every group does it. And people probably think that we're crazy where they like maybe look at crown and they look like just, I'm not even like saying like the Vanguard thing, but they like look at the groups that maybe we teach outdoors. You're like, that's so different. But honestly, the reality is they're not that different at all. Um, there might be certain facets that I really talk about a lot that you don't find as like, uh, as much of a priority to talk about, but I think what's underneath it, it, there's probably like 
85% is like almost exactly the same. Um, right, like a, and, a better anal- like a analogy might be like they're both green, but they're just different hues of green. Right. You know I mean, like it's just like a slightly different shade, the opposite sides of the spectrum. Right? Not at all. And honestly, a lot of the groups in DCI, like we're all pretty much saying some, I've, I've got to think we're all saying pretty similar things. Um, you know, I think what I've learned is like, and we've all like, we all fit in because like, I'm not on the battery staff at Mason, but it's like, I know how to fit myself into it without stamping out what each other person brings to the table. Like, could I talk about this? Could I talk about tempo? Could I talk about feel? Sure. But like, I think my role has been 30,000 foot, like what kind of energy are you bringing? What kind of like individuality are you bringing? That's so different, you know? And like, I think to go back to sort of your background and where, where you come from, it's like, it's awesome because your process of getting to where you got was so introspective and you're, you're learning about what you sound like and what you play. And like, for me, like, I feel like I like drumline the way people like pro sports, like what I liked about, you know, what I liked about Vanguard of four, like, it maybe wasn't like the way they sounded in a way it was. And I didn't know that. Of course I like subconsciously loved how they sounded, but it was like the flow and the physicality and the look and the attitude. That's why I like the NBA too. I do like the technical aspect of a basketball, but I love the fanfare and the, the um, showing off part of it where like people are, you see people go further. They push themselves past what they thought they were going to do because they have like a belief in themselves that can be coached into them. And like, I, that's what I really like about it. It's not to say that I don't love the musicality part. It's not to say you don't love that part of it. Cause I know you do those moments where they're lighting up and they're like, you're playing at, at the best as you can. It's so motivating. and so inspiring as a teacher. Um, that was the thing that got me into it. It was like when I was watching, you know, Justin Lewis in the blue coats, it was like, he's so cool. You know, I didn't know how hard that was. I didn't know what it took to do that. I was like, they look so awesome. And it was like as simple as that for me, it didn't make me the most musical player though. I think, yeah, I agree. I mean, (laughs) I love that. Like the total package is like the group that sounds amazing and has like this cool vibe or cool, like swag about them. And I remember as a player, when I was getting a really high levels of playing I got some comments from just people or like friends or I'd watch my own videos myself that I was just like boring or too stoic because I was so focused mm. on the music. And I think I eventually got comments that like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's a big difference. Now, when I personally got to like another crazy high level of just musical achievement that I didn't know was possible, like with my basic solo, I played it, my, my tenor solo, I just played it so many times and felt so comfortable that it was almost muscle memory that then... I found myself getting into it because I was just like excited. I was playing it and Mm -hmm. I was like beyond the level of like small details. So as a teacher, that's, that's just like how I did it. So I usually approach those type of things. Like that's the cherry on top. Mm -hmm. But in order to get to that place mentally, I try to encourage like all the uh, drummers that I teach, like you need to memorize the music. It needs to be so second nature. So then this will become second nature. Like the next thing that will happen is that you're getting into your performing. You don't even realize it. And then maybe I'll make a comment about it and help you like stretch it a little farther. And we come from it, those opposite directions, but the goal is the same. hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's, that is how I feel too. Um, it's hard to perform authentically when you lack mastery or preparation. When you have that preparation, 
it's going to come out through your expression. You're, you're going to be able to feel that expression authentically and really versus, you know, we see people perform with a snare drum on and it's phony. Yeah, you know, they're like chatwing and it's like, what's, you know, it's your, you're, you're kind of, they flipped what is supposed to come first and second. I so agree. I do personally like talking to students who are like not there yet about how they present themselves because I want them to feel the pressure of what the expectation is at the highest level. Like when you get to that top level of drum core, indoor or drum line or ever anything, the competence is so high. Then the style comes like the NBA players have this style when they take their free throw, because it's not because they're thinking about it. It's because they've dialed in their technique so much. They've, they're now, they get to dig into it these corners that otherwise you're just like, it's an accident. I think it becomes something that you can purposefully demonstrate the way that really great drum set players have a stylistic approach to their movement. Um, and that's, I love that about marching percussion or what I, what I want out of marching percussion is that natural expression. But man, I, I couldn't agree more. Like any young student who's putting that first, they are missing the boat on what should really be happening um, because they're seeing those drum lines that do that. And they think that it all just happens and it, it really doesn't. And like, I can even say from my experience, I was more of the like explosive performer, but like I was ticking a bit more, <laughs> you know? So it was yeah. like, I was like, I looked really cool. I know that, but like, was I the most consistent player? No, I was not. Yeah, and I think I, I was the opposite as a member. You know, like I said, I was just like, as a young member, I was just staring straight ahead, but like trying to nail the part, but probably was so boring to watch in lobby <laughs> and things like that. And I think I, I figured it out as I got older that there, you know, there are those two elements to it. You know, I, it's important, especially for young players, to realize, you know, the playing aspect is part of all of it. And a lot of times when I'm teaching like subsectionals, I'm like, hey, we're in subsectionals don't need to stare straight ahead. Just look down at your hands. Cause right now right. we're just focusing on this. The beginning part of the journey is what we're focusing on right now. Let's just like bring it down a notch. And then when we get with the full batteries, usually it's up another notch. And then we're in full ensemble. Like that progression I found to be the most successful. It's just to remind them the beginning of the day when we're in subsectionals, you're not worried about this at all yet. Let's like build up to it. You know, it's a, it's a journey. It's not like all at once. I just really like the word use authentic. It, it's, it doesn't look authentic if you try to do it all at once. That's the perfect way to describe it. It does not. And I mean, preparation is key because you can't be thinking, you know, a mile per minute processing every partial and also having a feel. Um, if you have done that work of preparing your hands and preparing the music, you can discuss feel. And you can discuss larger components of music, um, syncopation and timing and that musicality. It's hard to get into that that super refined musicality place when they're not playing the rhythm, you know, or if you haven't prepared the music and it's like, here's the thing that comes next. Here's the thing that, there's like layers to how far you can get. Um, and, and I think one thing that you've always brought is like, everything has a context. You can't just be a robot about what you do. Of course, like Matt Penland comes and he'll say things. I'm like, yeah, that that's what Matt would say here. Like, and I definitely have the same thing where it's like, we all integrate into a certain plug, which I think is like just great. And that's exactly how everyone should come to 
collaborative teaching. Um, but even as an individual, like, I feel like when I started teaching, it was like, I'm me. And like, if you're not conforming to that in every moment, like you're failing as a student. And the reality was like the opposite. Where it was like, here's what they need. Here's the type of teacher they need right now. Um, you know, my standard is always the highest, but I don't always need to be like this, like this way. And sometimes you have to go softer. Sometimes you have to go harder. Sometimes you have to do more reps. Sometimes you have to do less. Like it's just so context dependent. And I always felt like you brought that teacherly approach and checking all of us on like, hey, like you don't always have to just like be in one certain way. That's also something I always think about my own teaching, like trying to get better because I'm, you know, we're both still young in our teaching careers. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I have the opposite problem is sometimes I'm like maybe too mellow for too long. And I'm, then I think of my head on a water break, like, man, they have no energy. Today. And then I'm thinking like, well, maybe I don't have any energy today. Yeah. And I got to like, you know, you got to know when to do that. But definitely my personal forte is like, trying to bring it back down to like the homeostasis calm. That's what I, <laughs> I find myself doing on like every staff that I teach on is that I'm that person, which is fine. I love it. I love being that person, but it's important for every teacher when you don't have a staff of eight people to know that it's up to you. Maybe you have to fake it till you make it and you need to get hyped if you want them to be hyped and you got to like get comfortable doing that sometimes. And just who's around you. Um, I see like there's teams out there where everyone is just, they're the positive side of the magnet. There's no negative. There's no dichotomy. There's no contrast. And it's like the kids are like so revved up. It's just like, it's like a, a flat line. Um, I feel like what you're talking about, like being a dynamic teacher, if you express or if you expect dynamic results. Um, and I, I feel the same, like, and this is so personality driven. Like I am just the way I am. And like, that's pretty revved up. If I don't check myself, I'll just like spin out and be too fast and too loud and too crazy. And like, that's not what I want out of the groups I'm in front of. I want them to express at all levels. I want them to, sh to show contrast in what they do. Um, so it's great. Like me and you teaching together, we're probably like pretty like different people. Like our personalities are different, but like we have such a great contrast because you're in there making things like just like the clarity and then I'm in there like kind of sometimes overly cerebral or like getting big picture and making them, you know, like whatever direction I could possibly go in. And I think that's so necessary. And I always like loved like the way you rehearse the group up top is very reminiscent of how I felt starting at crown, the professionalism of it all. And I've learned so much about if you come to the group expecting that they're bad and that you're fixing them, they will be that. I feel like you're coming at it where you're like, you are all at the top of this. And I expect you to understand the high levels of what we're doing. And I'll just like rehearse you like you're in an orchestra and a symphony. And I got to say, I think that just works so much better. You're not like preemptively shaming the students and like assuming that they suck. Right. Yeah. I, I you know, but that, that is a big, I'm a bit big advocate of that concept. Like don't be on the meal break talking about how bad this kid was at the edition. You're not, I know that you're, the kids aren't hearing it, but you're, you're putting that in your own mindset and you don't want to personally, sure. you want to be the conductor of a professional ensemble, or you're like rehearsing the best percussion ensemble, like college in, in the nation. And, and what the, like the, you know, the professor's role in those rehearsals, like when I was at North Texas, 
Professor Mark Ford is up there. He's up there. He's not telling you how to play the murmur part. He's just letting you know, hey, from up here, it sounds like this. And you're like, okay, thank you. Thank you for letting me know because you, you just trust their ears. So the mm-hmm. our role on staff, especially at the highest level, is just like, hey, trust me. From the front, it sounds like you're slow or it sounds like that role just – I'm assuming you think it's clean because you should be trying every rep. I'm letting you know it sounds slow. You know, like mm-hmm. treat it that way, and it's just more respectful and it makes them – I don't know. I feel like it, it gives them some empowerment that – they have a reason try hard and it makes them trust you more because you're just giving them honest feedback. We both want it to sound the best it can be. I'm assuming you're trying hard every time, you know, it's such a cultural thing too. Like that, that idea of like the kids are them and we're us and it's like us versus them or like us being mad at them for like not doing it. Like one, the, the sooner as a teacher, you realize that every result that you're getting is probably a reflection of what you're bringing to the table. The, the You'll just be accountable. Like I blame myself for everything the students do. And when they achieve, I feel great about it. And when they don't, I know that it's likely what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, or when I'm saying it so that I have control over what is happening like you're saying like as a conductor you're sort of you're mediating on their contribution you're not the one like clicking in their face or like like making it so like they're they can't be reliant on what you're bringing to the table they actually just need to be able to do it themselves with with guidance but it's like such a teacher thing like i bet public school is way worse honestly than drum corps about like oh the kids you know, the kids are like this or the kids are blah. It's like, that's such a part that's like baked into teaching period. And it's like, it's pretty unhealthy and it makes it a lot less enjoyable, honestly, when it feels like that. And I know that that is a thing that has been in drum corps. It's like the sure. kids. And I'm not saying I haven't ever fallen into that trap. But like, <laughs> I do try to catch myself, especially like in the last couple of years. I just like, I don't know if I had just like a certain moment or a point of reflection where I was just like, you would be so embarrassed if the kids are, you'd be so like, you would never want the kids to hear this. So let's not think of it yeah. that way. It's a team effort. The, like the use of the words, we and us have to be genuine. Like you have to actually feel like you are a part of their team and you're just there to help them. Yeah. Literally the language saying we are slow or we are fast as a quad line, like that actually changes. Like you are slow, you are fast. You know, like I, I totally, it definitely resonates with me. And I think, you know, just, being accountable and understanding when you're in the line, you can't hear what the teacher hears. It's it's easy to get frustrated, especially over the summer, honestly, to just feel like it's super stagnant and then realizing that's part of it and rehearsing through it in a professional way is like so massive. Like every drum line hits that like three quarter place. We were like, oh, are we ever going to get better? And you either like get worse or you like peak basically at the end uh it's like super important you know that like july time we were like we suck we suck it's been two weeks and we're we're totally gray and then like you hit the end of july and you hit the beginning of august and you're either like you turn a corner or you kind of you can't maintain it and it's like so dependent on the type of i guess attitude you bring to the students you know and that's why i think you know We've had so much more success, students coming back, higher levels of talent, retention, um, and the type of relationship we all have. Like, I know the students at Mason, like, just, you know, they are all about having you in there. They love getting taught by you. You know, I feel like I come at a different way, but I feel the same, like, you know, appreciation, I guess you could say. Like, I, I definitely feel like 
they appreciate what we all do because it's different. And I think that's super cool. Like we have that type of different, you know, looking at the teams that a lot of groups have is it's all alumni or it's all people taught by the same person, but it's like, we, we don't have that. And I actually think it's something that's special about what we do for indoor. And it's why I think maybe we've had a different identity than other groups um, because we've, we've gone through our hurdles, you know, Oh, like, we're not going to say three inches. Like we all agree. That's not making us better <laughs> as a small example, even though it was like a huge example. Not anymore. It's not a huge example. It's fine. <laughs> not for us. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all being phased out. I feel like in general, anyway, hopefully just in general in the activity, it's like gradually people are realizing that it's easier way to teach it, but it's not a more way to teach it maybe this you know i wanted to get you on here to just talk shop because i feel like it's it's super cool it's been very uh educational and you know mind-bending to like work with people like yourself that have just a different experience i feel like it's been super healthy it's been great for george mason it's been great just for the the organization to have minds of different philosophies and i i'm super excited that we were able to sort of uh, put some of those conversations on the table for other people to hear because you don't know what you don't know. And I feel like we have all learned quite a bit from each other um, and it's just been super dope. So I just want to thank you, Matt, for getting on here. And I just, uh, I booked my hotel this morning for your wedding. So I'm excited for that too next month and we're going to have a great time. So, uh, and I'll probably see you, well, I won't see you this weekend, but I think the one after. Yeah, the one after. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome. Awesome to get to share with everyone my experience working with George Mason too and getting to know you and yeah, it's been great. Love it, dude. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace out, everybody.